Welcome back, healthy people, to another great episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. Please take your shoes off at the door and grab a pair of footies if you need them. Can't have you all staining up my carpet. I'm working on saving up to get some hardwood floors. Hopefully next time you all come in, it'll be done and you won't have to take off your shoes. But once again, welcome, 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 and make yourself comfortable. So let's get started with today's HPI, aka Healthy People Information. This is my first episode in my series on the novel coronavirus, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, also known as SARS-CoV-2, aka COVID-19. Each episode will build upon the last episode and provide information on the virus. Almost every comic book superhero or villain has an origin story. So let's start off with the origin story of the coronavirus. The first cases of the coronavirus was reported in Wuhan City, China. Wuhan, Wuhan, in December 2019. Wuhan is the capital of the centrally located Hubei province in the People's Republic of China. It's the largest city in the province and has a population of over 11 million people. The coronavirus group normally infects animals and rarely transmits from animals to humans. However, as with this virus and others, it does happen. Other notable coronaviruses include the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and the SARS virus. These viruses contain genetic material called RNA, which is used to replicate the virus once it enters the cell of a host. As of this recording on January 24, 2021, over the past week, there has been an average, wait, wait, take a guess. Just throw a daily number of cases you think is occurring right now in the U.S. currently. How many cases do you think are occurring a day currently in the United States? Got your number? Good. Shout it out. As of this recording, 176,290 cases per day are occurring over the past week. This is a decrease of 31% from the average two weeks earlier. Once again, that's 176,290 cases per day, not per week, per day that occurs a day. New people being diagnosed. That's my hometown, which is approximately 55,000 three times over every day. That is a lot of people. How does that number compare to your hometown? And as of this recording, approximately 25 million Americans have been diagnosed with coronavirus. These numbers are provided by a database done by the New York Times. One of the first things that I noticed that made this virus different from other viruses that I previously treated in patients were the symptoms that patients presented with. COVID-19 has a wide array of symptoms that display approximately two to 14 days after a person has been exposed to the virus. We call that the incubation period. The average days of incubation is approximately five days. So from when a person is infected until when they start showing symptoms, the average is about five days. Symptoms in adults can include fever, chills, cough, loss of taste and smell, shortness of breath, muscle pain, fatigue, and sore throat. I know one of the common things was shortness of breath with a lot of my patients. They just felt like they couldn't take a deep breath in or they would get real short of breath when they start talking. They were talking real choppy sentences when I would talk to them via telemedicine visits. Each word would sound real short 
kind of just like that. That's how they would talk because they couldn't get a full deep breath in. Some of the super rare symptoms include rashes, coughing up blood, and conjunctivitis. Symptoms in children include pharyngeal erythema, which is just a redness of the throat, cough, fever, and diarrhea. As you can see, there are a wide array of symptoms. If you come to see me and you have the bubble guts and you ask me if it's corona, I can't say no. I mean, it's a possibility, but if you told me you may have eaten something poorly cooked the previous night, I would say it's less likely that it's COVID that's causing your symptoms. That's why a physician always must get a good history from patients. We gotta figure out what you do previously before you came to see us. Were you around someone who had maybe had COVID or was in a large crowd? Or did you eat something bad that caused you to have some of these symptoms? Just to help us get a better picture and diagnose you properly. And for those who don't know what the bubble guts is, it's when your stomach starts rumbling and it makes you stop whatever you're doing right there in your tracks. And you gotta run to the bathroom and you start having real watery diarrhea and a very stinky ugh, foul bowel movement. Start grabbing things to brace yourself as it starts to come out. And you start talking to yourself. Oh Lord, why did I eat that? I'm, ne I'm never eating that again. And one of the craziest things about this virus is that a large number of individuals don't have any symptoms. Approximately 40% of individuals who have had COVID-19 are asymptomatic. They don't have any symptoms. It is estimated that during March 2020 of the pandemic, approximately 1 in 80 individuals with COVID-19 were diagnosed. That is one of the major reasons that the virus spread so fast. We weren't diagnosing these people. Either people weren't having symptoms or they had symptoms that looked like something else or may have been misdiagnosed and we weren't just properly diagnosing those people, unfortunately. That's just kind of my opinion on one of the reasons that this may have spread fast. We didn't know, we didn't have a clear picture of symptoms that were going on early. But now we have a better grasp of what kind of symptoms COVID individuals have. Well, Dr. Randy, with all those broad symptoms and people walking around with no symptom, how do you properly diagnose someone? Great question. Well, you properly diagnose someone by giving them a COVID test, which I will discuss on the next episode. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what we call a cliffhanger. On today's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Sidney Deal. Dr. Deal is a family medicine physician from Coleman, Texas, a small town of approximately 4,700 located in the heart of Texas. Literally, it's in the stead center of Texas. Dr. Deal attended Baylor University for undergraduate school and Texas Tech University Health Science Center School of Medicine for medical school. Sydney's definitely through and through a Texan. She probably came out of the womb with a cowboy hat on and a piece of barbecue in her hand. Dr. Deal and I completed our residency training together at Atlanta Medical Center in Atlanta. A few years after training, Dr. Deal moved back to Texas to practice in Comanche County which is located in the heart of Texas, just like Coleman, Texas. Comanche County has a population of about 13,000. So Sydney went from a one-stop light town to a two-stop light town. I bet there's a lot of horse traffic in Comanche County. I know that's what most people think that is our primary mode of transportation in Texas, is horses. No, it's not horses, it's oxen. 
Dr. Deal works in the inpatient and outpatient setting, meaning she sees patients in the hospital and in the clinic. I wanted to have Sydney on to have her share her COVID story in her area. Most major news outlets give the story of what is happening in the larger cities, i.e. LA, New York, Atlanta, Mordor, those major cities with a population of millions of people. But what's going on in the rural areas? Well, I wanted to talk to Dr. Deal about what it's been like experiencing the pandemic in a rural area, how they prepared before the wave reached their county, and how it affected her and her community. We're going to get into a lot of more stuff, even what went into her decision to get vaccinated even though she's pregos. Insert, ah, uh, because she's pregnant. Ah. This will be a two-part episode, so look forward to hearing some aspects of the interview that you may not hear in the first part. It'll be talked about in the second part. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Dr. Dill from Coleman, Texas, but who resides now in Comanche County. Hope you enjoy it. So welcome, Dr. Dill, to the next episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. Thank you for sitting down and being part of the podcast with me. For having me. Yes, so glad to have you. So I figured I'd have Dr. Deal on to talk about her recent experience in treating people with COVID, what it's like living in a rural environment, country. I don't know if those are synonymous, treating people over there and just kind of seeing um, her thought process on how everything's gone thus far. So tell us a little bit about Comanche, Texas. Yeah, so, I, so I'm so i a family medicine physician. I, I practice in Comanche County. So I live in Comanche, Texas. Our hospital is located and serves the county. Comanche County is about um, 13,500 people. Um, it's made up of, of a few different towns. The two bigger towns are Comanche and DeLeon, which are approximately 4,000 people, um, 4,500 people apiece. And our hospital is located directly in between the two biggest towns. So the two towns are about 20 miles from each other. And our hospital is located completely in the country. I mean, there's a somebody's house is across the highway, but otherwise it's just open farm fields all around. And so our hospital is located there and we serve our county and we also pull patients from about six surrounding counties in the area. We are what we call what they call a critical access hospital. And what that means is it's a designation given by CMS that basically gives us a little different pay structure, a little bit more support from the government in order to provide care to rural areas um, across the United States. So Randy, of course, from Texas originally, um, you know that Texas is wide open. Uh Um, Our city or where where I live is the biggest metropolitan area is Dallas-Fort Worth, and that's about a close to a two-hour drive away from where we are. Um, So that's a lot of Texas. Even as you go further into West Texas, your access to healthcare becomes smaller and smaller. And so that's why it's really important to support these hospitals. And so we have 25 beds in our hospital. Um, We also, to be a critical access hospital, mm -hmm. yeah, to be a critical access hospital, you have to be no closer than 35 miles from another hospital. So that's another part of the designation. But our hospital is pretty impressive for the size that we have. We have our inpatient area. We have x-ray or all imaging, MRI, CT scan, x-ray, our lab. And then we actually also do mammograms and then a nuclear medicine 
area where we have do things like nuclear stress tests and stuff like that. So, and then our clinic is attached to the hospital. And so we're all in one location, which makes it nice for rounding on patients. And this ebbs and flows over the years for all rural communities. We actually have probably a lot more doctors in our rural community than um, a lot of places, but we have six family medicine physicians and four mid-levels. And so we all work in the outpatient setting, but then the physicians also work in the inpatient setting. Okay. So Comanche is not big city living, is it? Not quite. You know, (laughs) I mean, there's no... uh, Let's see. Chain-wise, we've got a Dairy Queen, which is okay. great. Okay. Uh, Subway. Do you have a Walmart? Sonic? No Walmart. No. What's the big grocery store over there? Is it a Piggly Wiggly? <laughs> we've got a Brookshire's. So, but actually, so my hometown is another small town, almost exactly the same size, an hour west of us. And the local grocery store there is the Shopping Basket. That's locally owned. <laughs> That sounds like my hometown a little bit. Market Basket, that's one of the the grocery chain stores out there. That's how I kind of base things on if your town is small or not. Do you have a Walmart? Because that's where, if you're country, you're usually going to chill in the Walmart parking lot on, on a weekend. Oh, we, we, uh, growing up, we chilled in the All Steps parking lot. That's a um, Texas, New Mexico convenience store. What's it called again? All Steps, A L L S U P. They have uh, really good fried burritos you go under the glass for. Okay. You know, I've never heard of it. I'm right before curfew. <laughs> so, what made you want to go work uh, in the uh, rural community? So I, so like I said, I grew up just an hour or an hour west of where I currently practice in Coleman, Texas, which is very similar to the demographics and and the size of Comanche County where I currently work. My dad is a family medicine physician there and really practices very traditional rural family medicine. So when I think of that, I think of inpatient, outpatient, like I'm currently doing, but then also he does ER and OB, which I don't do those two things right now. But I knew from a young age that I always wanted to go into medicine. One of the things that, you know, especially when you're interviewing for medical school or residency, something that I say, and I I do truly believe that I really believe that medicine is the universal language. So it's something that can, in no matter what the situation is, can connect you to somebody that may be different from you, whether it be in you know political ideology, religion, the way that you look, just it's a way to really connect to people. And that's something that was really important to me in choosing your career. And so when I went to medical school, I loved everything except surgery. Oh, standing <laughs> for that long. No. And also, ironically enough, having to wear masks for that long was like number two on my list of not being a surgeon. I probably could overcome that now. Um, but, <laughs> but, but really, I, I loved everything that I studied and I didn't want to lose any of that. I wanted to be part of everything that I learned. Um, and so even though I knew from an early age that I wanted to be in a rural setting, I wanted to do family medicine, that really solidified it. And so residency and then you know marriage and children and all that kind of stuff, at the end of the day, I really wanted to be back in a rural community. I'm kind of a small town girl at heart. Don't give me like 10, 20 Yelp reviews on the dry cleaner I should use. Just give me one. Let me, ju- let me just, don't give me any options. I just want to go to the dry cleaner, drop it off. And that's it over my lunch break. And so 
you know, being in that kind of community setting where not just, you know, there's something to be said about having patients that you carry for your entire practice and, and you get to know them, but also in the rural setting, not only do you know them in your practice, but you also go to church with them. Mm-hmm. Your kids go to school together. It's really a special connection that um, I think practicing rural medicine has that other other places of medicine don't. Right. So you knew that you wanted to go back, of course, and practice rural medicine. So is that one of the main reasons that you chose to do family medicine? Because as you know, we we do so much and we learn so much from all different specialties. I, I say we were the only people, in my opinion, in the hospital that pretty much knew everybody because we rotated right. with everybody. We were on every floor for different rotations. I remember being in the um, internal medicine rotation and they would tell me, go talk to the surgery people and see if we can get this line put in sooner because they knew that I had a good camaraderie with the surgery people. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure, you know, which came first, being in a rural place, wanting to be in a rural place or wanting to practice family medicine. It's hard to say because I think there are certain areas of medicine that maybe I enjoy more than others. But you're right. At the end of the day, I knew if I wanted to practice in a rural setting, I really needed to be able to treat patients of all ages and have a broad enough spectrum of practice that I could provide the care that was needed for my patients. And, you know, a lot of my patients here, they, it's pretty challenging too. So family medicine in general can be very challenging, but it also becomes very challenging when you really don't have anybody to reach out to for stuff. So I have a lot of patients who are uninsured or underinsured. And whereas, you know, maybe in residency or even the couple of years I spent in Atlanta practicing, if I didn't know something, I could send it to a psychiatrist or, or whatever. But a lot of these patients, I'm, I'm trying, having to learn how to do certain things because there is no other option. Scary enough as it is, I'm all they got. <laughs> right. So you have to use all the tools in your bag. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming those tools are definitely good once COVID hits your town. That's probably a little bit of an understatement, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when did it hit? When was your so, first thing that you can think of that you remember? So we have a, a medical staff meeting every Thursday, every Thursday morning. And I specifically remember early March, it was before a national emergency was declared or anything like that. I specifically remember starting to have a conversation about, you know, it looks like there's a pandemic brewing. How are we going to approach this? What is our, what are we going to do here? And it wasn't long after that, that basically the United States shut down maybe a week or two. Our first, I can tell you specifically, our our first patient that we had in Comanche County, and I can say this because it was all over Facebook, she's not my personal patient, but was somebody who had gone to Europe over spring break. So in Texas, spring break is in March, Mm -hmm. right right when people were on spring break, whenever they um, called the national emergency. She was in Europe over spring break and came back and started developing symptoms. And sure enough, it was secondary to COVID. So our first case was actually pretty early in all of this, but as I'm sure we'll continue to talk about, the really peak and really bad part of all this has come much later. Did you think it was going to reach your area because you're kind of in a rural area setting? 
maybe sometimes some people have the thought process, oh, it'll never make it here. That same meeting that we were talking about where, you know, what are we going to do? I will give credit to our, to our organization, to CCMC, that we were extremely prepared from the very beginning of this pandemic as far as what our response was going to be. We had already identified a location in Comanche that would be a place for overflow of patients. You know, this whole thought of like negative pressure and we couldn't have them in the, in the hospital. Where are we going to keep all these patients? Where are we going to take care of them? We had identified that. We'd gotten in contact with our emergency management team. I, I've not been on this team, um, but we, we have an emergency management response team that's made up of like our county judge and, and our chief of staff, our medical chief of staff, and um, some other people, important leaders in the county who at the very beginning of this started, meet, started meeting twice per week and have continued to meet. They just meet once a week now, but have continued to meet through this entire thing. So my personal thought on all of this, again, I remember saying this in some of our first meetings was, I really don't think we're going to see an impact in our community for a few weeks or maybe even a couple of months. We're really, because at the time, you know, we were just, we were really seeing it in Washington and New York, in New York City. Hmm. And from what we knew about the virus, we felt like, and health officials felt like it was obviously very transmissible, but very transmissible in places where people are really compacted, you know, so apartment buildings, public transportation, that type of stuff. And obviously out here, I mean, we don't really have any of that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I really didn't think that we were going to see any sort of rush or overwhelming of patients um, until we started seeing it as it came to Texas, and then as we started seeing it in more rural areas. And in fact, that's, you know, that has been what has happened. Yeah, Texas has become a hot spot. It's awful. It really is. Yeah, it's still a hot spot. Yeah. How did the uh, community react when, when the first case came? It's hard to remember what month happened when. But in the spring, for sure, maybe even early summer, we started getting cases and it and you're sitting here waiting, like, is the shoe about to drop? You know, like you have one case and then the next day, all of a sudden we've got three more cases and, and which I realize doesn't sound like a lot, but when you, when your population is small, your numbers, you know, can be a lot smaller, but it kind of just kept felt feeling like when, when is all of this about to hit? You know, are we going to be blindsided with all of this? And I think initially everybody and and maybe this goes for most of the United States. I mean, I think initially everybody was very scared. You go to Brookshire's, our local grocery store, um, <laughs> the whole deli meat section was gone. There's nothing there. You go to, you know, of course, the whole to- toilet paper shortage everywhere. But, you know, you couldn't find ground beef. People were buying ground beef. Well, most people get ground beef from their own cows here. But Anyway, you can't, everybody's like bartering their, what they have. Like everybody has like chickens and cows and they're like, I'll give you some ground beef if you give me a dozen eggs or whatever. But you know, you, you could tell that people were very scared and we're really following guidelines. We're staying home. What happened was all of this was announced over spring break. So kids just never went back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, when they came back from spring break, they just, they said, well, you know, we'll go back in about two weeks. We'll go back in four weeks. We'll go back in six weeks. And then by the time it was all said and done, they just never went back. 
Now, as time went on, I think the thought process and kind of what was, how people viewed the pandemic changed quite a bit. And we could probably get into a whole lot of different specifics as to why that happened. But at least initially, people were very worried. Right, right. I think we've gotten now just accustomed to just being in it and just understanding that this is a different way of life now. It was one of my patients, I think they mentioned that they knew that we were just going to have to live through this when they went to Publix and they seen them take the stickers off the uh, off the rows where it says you got to go up this way and go down this way in the aisle. Once those stickers was gone, he's like, oh, it's over now. We're just going to have to live in this pandemic. Yeah, I would say here, especially right now, with how bad it is, you do have a lot more people who are kind of to a degree willing to do their part, mm-hmm. but you still have a really large population who maybe don't believe that it's a hoax or, you know, of course you still have that, but you still have kind of people who just don't really care, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's pretty varied here. So, you know, in some ways, a lot of life here is going on kind of like normal, except for people who either have had somebody pass away or hospitalized, and then of course our healthcare workers. I mean, for these two groups of people, there's really no normal anymore. It is a completely different reality between those who are greatly affected by what is going on and those who are not, basically. Why do you feel like some people just don't care? Is it because they're uneducated or they just don't want to change the way that they're living for other people? The simple thing of just wearing a mask? I think education has a lot to do with everything. I mean, I I am someone who believes very strongly in education and the ability to really use it to help to help steer people in kind of the right, I, I don't know the right way to say that, but steer people in the right way of kind of thinking about things. So yeah, you know, I think education, yes. I do think that there's been a lot from the very beginning, mixed messaging and not unified messaging in how people should approach what is going on. So you know, you'll have one person that's an authority say one thing and another person that's an authority say another thing or or even even groups, you know, even like the CDC will come out and say one thing and then weeks later it changes. And part of that is just science, you know, as we gather more information, recommendations are going to change. But that can be very confusing to people who are not in the scientific community. So I think that's a big part of it. I also think in general, that a lot of people don't care about stuff unless they're directly affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be a very harsh, and that's not true of everyone, obviously. We have, there are a lot of people who are, have just a lot of humanity, but there are also a lot of people who won't really see how bad something can be unless they are directly affected by it. And, you know, there's this, how do we conjure up empathy So individually, how do we conjure up empathy in order to help it direct us in how we go about our day-to-day and the decisions that we make? But also, how do we conjure up this greater idea of compassion, just what is best for for our society overall? And I don't think you can, it's hard to kind of, you can't force that on people, obviously. Like, I know a lot of people who kind of have this, you know, like the hot phrase is virtue signaling. Like a lot of people, you know, well, pushing on others 
why are you acting this way? Why can't you be virtuous like I am? And obviously that gets you nowhere. But also I think that's just kind of a learned behavior more than anything that could be taught or forced upon anybody else. Is that one of the reasons why you post a lot on Facebook, kind of educating people about that? Yeah. So, man, I hate social media. I do. (laughs) With a passion. Except for podcasts. Except for podcasts. I don't consider podcasts to be social media so much. I actually love podcasts. It's where I get, I'm very much an audio learner. So I get most of my information by listening to podcasts. But no, I I really think that a lot of... um, a lot of the evil in society stems from social media. But anyway, there also can be a lot of good that can come from it. And so prior to this pandemic, I had been off of Facebook for a couple of years, um, just seemed to take too much of my time that wasn't really useful. And so when this started, I thought, because I do have Instagram, I just have a you know 100 followers or whatever, people that I know closely, Mm -hmm. post a picture of my child coloring on my couch or something like that. (laughs) But as far as Facebook, you know, I have people on there who I don't even like, I look at their name and I'm like, I don't even know where I know you from. They're still my friends on Facebook. Like what part of my life did I know you from? Mm -hmm. And so it dawned on me at the beginning of this pandemic, as much as I hate social media, what a great way to try and educate people Because if we as doctors, so I think we have a really bad habit of a lot of us, you know, just want to do our job and want to do it well and help people, but we don't want to step out of our bounds or offend people or whatever it may be. And we're so busy with our, with our day-to-day work that, you know, adding something on top of that, but, you know, I thought what a great way to educate people and to combat all of this misinformation that is on social media. Hmm. Um, Because if, if there's not somebody combating it, then it just gets louder and louder and louder. And so I started at the beginning of the pandemic, I started doing little Facebook live videos through my hospital. I didn't come up with the name of it, but it was what's the deal with Dr. Deal. (laughs) Super embarrassing. Um, But (laughs) I would just kind of, you know, come up with topics about the pandemic and answer questions. I don't really do that anymore, but on my own personal Facebook, as much as I can, I try and, you know, talk about the pandemic, everything from, you know, talking about articles that are posted online and combating misinformation to just talking about personal experience. Because I think, you know, talking about that compassion and empathy, people have to learn that themselves. Yes, but also they can't learn it if we're not sharing our stories. And so, you know, I've, I've written some things about just how difficult it is um, for nurses and healthcare workers, for doctors, watching people die and, and only knowing that there's so much that you can do. And so that's kind of why I've done that. And as soon as this pandemic is over, I think I might take a little break and I don't know if I'll get back on or not, but until then I'm gonna just keep, keep hopefully educating people. What kind of receptions have you received thus far? Mostly positive reviews or do you, are you arguing with people online? You're typing real hard. No, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. You know, I have to hide from my husband sometimes. He's like, what are you doing? Get off of Facebook. No, I, I think mostly it's been positive. A few times I've had somebody who has shared something 
So I, I really don't ever have anything negative directly on anything that I post. Sometimes I'll see people share something. And so it's somebody that I don't know will post something negative. And the way that I kind of approach that is if there's something that's written in what they say that just has misinformation, then I try to very thoughtfully address that misinformation and whatever it was that they said, Mm -hmm. because people are going to come by and read that and think that whatever that person is saying is correct. So I do my best to try and combat that misinformation, but I don't think there's really no use, especially now, now that we're what, 10 months into this pandemic. If you still think this is a hoax, there's no, I mean, I'm not changing your mind about that. And it's a waste of, it's really just a waste of time to spend energy. And, you know, you can, my hair is like a lot more grayer than it used to be. And that, you know, for what? I'm never going to change anybody's mind that is that far into thinking, into their thinking. So I really just kind of leave that, those things be, and just hope that those people who are riding the fence who really want to do well, who want to contribute, it, contribute, but really maybe don't know how or are not educated well enough in doing so, that's my target audience. Okay. So you kind of mentioned this earlier about how this has been different for nurses, practitioners. How has this whole scenario been different for you? So, oh gosh. Um, On side right there. <laughs> It's been a year, you know, we moved to Comanche in October of 2019. About six months later was when the pandemic hit. So for one, just as like in in my personal life, you know, it's like you move to a new town, you're trying to make friends, you're trying to get established, and then bam, (laughs) first pandemic in a hundred years happens. So, you know, that, that and that, since has been difficult as far as just the personal aspect, but that's everybody's experienced that. I mean, everybody has had some personal hardships in, in moving forward in kind of what's been going on. But I think it can divide as far as like this past year into kind of like the negative things and into the positive things. And the negative things, of course, have been some of the, you know, I think it's with with everything, trying to stay on top of information, trying to educate people, the stress of what's been going on, you know, my parenting has probably suffered a little bit. You know, I find myself trying to keep up with the news and maybe, you know, I, I should be off my phone or whatever it may be. Of course, relationships, you know, have suffered and, and just the stress and kind of the mental anguish of all of this. There was a few weeks ago, there was a time where, it really got really, I mean, it's still very bad, but the initial really bad happened early to mid-December. The first time where we were hit the very hardest um, was around that time. And you could see it coming. I mean, I, I had warned for weeks prior to this that this was coming, but that initial part was was right around that time. And that first, one of those first weekends, I went up to the hospital just to try and help the nurses for a few hours every day. And it was, I've had patients die before, like in residency, but it it was just such a different feeling being up there for hours at a time. You know, as doctors, we come in, you know, we're making very difficult decisions. We're trying to manage the patients, but we're not standing there at the bedside for hours at a time. We're not checking on patients. We're not seeing them fight their BiPAP. We're not seeing them alone. I mean, think about all the, just the suffering that's happened. People are just by themselves suffering with this. 
they're not seeing their families. You know, maybe they're able to FaceTime with them, but half the time they, you know, aren't coherent enough to be able to do it. And just kind of watching that suffering and then watching what the nurses are having to go through hour after hour. There was one week when we had like, you know, I think we had five codes in one week. I had somebody come in and they, a nurse, and she was just having a really hard time because, you know, we went from, I don't think, I would guess, I mean, this is a complete guess. I don't, I probably could find the numbers for you, but we went from probably in a year's time, I don't know, 10 deaths in our hospital, maybe. And those would be, you know, people who were very end of life, DNR, you know, no resuscitation efforts because they were ready to go or, or almost even hospice care to, you know, one week we had like five deaths in, in a week. So can you imagine, you know, our, our regular med surge nurses who aren't dealing with that to all of a sudden it's over and over and over again. And it's not even just that it's the death, but it's deaths of people, you know, and it's your, you know, your friend's mother or your good friend's grandfather or whoever. And so this is a very, it's not even just, you know, death in general is hard, but put it in a compacted situation with people who you know more about than just their name and date of birth and comorbidities it makes it really, really difficult. And I, you know, a lot of these people, I don't know their background because I'm, I'm newer here, but I could see it in a lot of the nurses and even my colleagues, you know, my, my colleagues, they're the ones that have most of these patients in the hospital. And you can just see how hard it is for all of them to, to watch the death and feeling like, you know, you're doing everything that you can, but it's not enough. And so, you know, I think that's, that's been the hardest thing. And, and, so there was that period, there was that weekend, and then the next weekend I was on call, and that was right before Christmas. And honestly, it was it was really, really, really difficult. The initial shock of it has kind of worn off to where the kind of mental anguish from it is manageable. And I think that's a, a skill that as doctors, we develop over time. We know how to compartmentalize different things. Mm-hmm. But that was... I would say that that's kind of obviously the biggest negative effect of all of this. But since, you know, we should always try and look at any positive in anything, I think there have been some positives in that one, I think I'm a much better doctor um, because of this, you know, set aside COVID and, and trying to treat that we've had to treat patients in our hospital that we normally wouldn't be treating. I mean, I've developed some skills that I wouldn't have had otherwise, as far as procedural skills um, that I've just had, I've learned to do because the opportunity was there that wouldn't normally be there. But that, you know, that's one big, probably the biggest positive of all that. I think also I've become a better communicator because of all of this. Um, So there is some good, you know, I'm not so sure how it weighs the bad, but we can look at the good. And one thing I'll say, just because it kind of goes along with what we're talking about, one very specific thing about rural medicine, you know, we always talk about, I think people have talked a lot about the whole idea of flattening the curve um, is that we don't want our resources, we don't want our hospitals to be overwhelmed all at one time. Like, no, we cannot save every single person from COVID. And the fallout of trying to do so would be so much greater than the deaths that would, would occur otherwise. But we don't all want it to happen all at one time. And so that's the idea of flattening the curve, right? 
-hmm. In making that argument, people will say, you know, we don't want the hospitals to be full because of all of the other things that are going to come in that are not COVID. So stroke, heart attack, trauma, DKA. Um, called normal stuff. All the stuff that we normally see, especially in the wintertime. Right. You know, hospitals are normally really busy in the winter. You know, at Atlanta Medical Center, we many times in the winter we had, we were on diversion because we didn't have enough ICU beds. Right. Um, so that's a normal winter. So take that for all of hospitals, but then think of rural Texas or rural America mm -hmm. specifically. All of those patients, the patients that come in with a heart attack from trauma who are in septic shock, um, so, you know, bad enough infection that they're having all of their organs are shutting down and stuff like that. Those patients, we ship to another hospital. We call up a helicopter, we call up an airplane, we call up an ambulance. And we ship those patients to a bigger facility that has an ICU that has specialists there. And that's not easy. We can't, to do. and it's and it's not easy to do. Uh -huh. Like so, so in general, in a normal year, so 2019, when before the pandemic happened, you know, you would have to call up a couple of hospitals to find us to find a spot to send those people. But you would always find somebody. I mean, it might take a little bit of time, but the patient was sick enough; it's easy to get the transfer. Uh -huh. Now. All of those people, so let's say you don't care anything about COVID, let's say you think it's a hoax, whatever, you come into the hospital with sepsis, septic shock, chances of us getting you out of our hospital into an ICU is low, and it's going to be very difficult, and the time that it's going to take to get you there, you may die in the meantime. Yeah, because I just had to talk to one of my friends about this. He called me asking about somebody else that he knew whose family member needed to be transferred to another hospital. And I kind of explained to him all the ins and outs of that and that it's not that easy, especially during these times. You have to have somebody willing to accept the patient. Will the patient make it to the hospital alive? Yeah. Like you have to survive like being transported and no one wants to accept a patient who's going to die as soon as they get there, unfortunately. And in normal times, they would. But right now, I mean, even they would call that. But, you know, the biggest the biggest thing right now is just hospitals don't have beds. Yep. Um, and so, you know, whereas before we would call one, two, you know, maybe three hospitals to get somebody transferred. We're calling 80, 90, 100 mm -hmm. hospitals. Um, you know, I had a colleague who was working up in the Panhandle, which is you know, the upper part of Texas, small mm -hmm. town. And this was, this was probably six weeks ago, if, if not a little bit longer, had a patient that was on a ventilator. They can't, this, this was a COVID case. She came in with COVID. She had to get intubated and be on the ventilator. They called at that time, 63 hospitals in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and finally found a place in Kansas to send that patient. Wow. And it's only gotten worse since then. Basically here, the only way that a patient is going to get transferred is if they're on a ventilator. So we're really doing ICU care in our hospital right now. We have um, our clinic nurses who are pulling hours on the floor um, after, after work. You know, they'll work on the floor to help with some of the staffing needs. I, we even had, you know, I, I was down there the other day and one of our people from Human Resources was just down there as kind of a runner and and somebody a sitter with patients um, just because you know trying to trying to help the nurses and and make sure people have the best care yeah. 
Well, that's it for part one of the interview with Dr. Deal. That was some great insight into the life of a physician during the pandemic. I really felt Sydney when she said it's hard watching someone die. I've been there and trust me, it's not easy. I've been up before late nights working in a hospital, just trying to save patients' lives and not being able to sleep because you're so worried that if you go to sleep, something bad will happen. It's even more difficult in these times because people are dying alone with no family. There's no one there to see them during their final days. It's really, really sad. These are different times, y'all. Very different. And just to recap on the information I provided earlier, the incubation period of COVID is from about two to 14 days, which is the time from being infected to developing symptoms. Usually symptoms develop within the first five days. Symptoms can vary, but the most common symptoms in adults include fever, cough, fatigue, shortness of breath, and loss of taste and smell. And in children, redness of the throat, cough, and fever. Also, remember that approximately 40% of people don't show any symptoms. They're just walking around, having a virus, and not having any of those common symptoms that I just listed. So wear a mask and try to socially distance yourselves as much as possible. Six feet. Do like one of my patients did on a telemedicine visit. She was on the phone with me doing a telemedicine visit in her car with the window rolled up. And one of her family members came by and was trying to talk to her and she just kept yelling, six feet, six feet. And this was somebody who was in the car with the windows rolled up. She was taking it very, very serious. So take it as serious as she was doing. I'll be back again next week. The goal is to start putting out more content and give you all more to look forward to. Hopefully you'll tune in and like the information I'm providing. Look out for part two of the interview with Dr. Deal next week. Be sure to rate, like, subscribe, and share with others. Thank you to those who have liked the podcast and have shared it with others and who have left a comment. Thank you to Team Manning for leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate the love. See, if you leave a comment, I might shout you out. You might get a little podcast shout out. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't love getting a shout out? I hope that provides a little incentive for you to leave a comment. So once again, thank you for listening. See you healthy people again next week. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.